0: late 1800s. Uh, I'm sure it goes back further than that. I'm sure that as soon as there are drums, there are, you know, magazines, publications that are widely available.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics.
2: And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports media, and I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains.
1: And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. This week, the Journalism History Podcast is featuring the winners of our National Student Podcast Competition. Throughout the week, you'll be hearing from students across the nation as they share their stories of journalism history.
3: You step out of the green room and hear the roar of the crowd. Stepping up to the drum riser, you see the sparkle of your brand new drum set. Waiting for the curtain to pull back, your pulse starts to fly. Then you close the magazine. You've just been in a daydream thanks to your favorite drum company's catalog. Those catalogs are just one facet of drum companies and the publications that they put out. They create a world where you can spend hours being inspired, giving even adults a sense of childlike wonder. It's a world that's thrived for decades, but it's also a world that's in danger. I'm Nick Ashton with Louisiana State University. In this podcast, we're gonna look at the media history of the drum industry. It's a story told through centuries, a story that reflects who we are as a culture and how technology has evolved with it. We'll hear from artists, dealers, builders, marketers, historians, and more. And they all share a common thread. They strengthen the drum community through their actions and they all wear each other's hats in one way or another. So what's the pulse of the drum publication world? Is it dying? Is it dead? Is it stronger than it's ever been? Let's go to Vancouver, BC.
4: Back in my day, it was drooling over the catalogs, and I, I've actually made a point of of going back and getting. I'm not a collector, but I went and got the, uh, this this pearl catalog. You know, the beautiful thing about that is that I can open that up, and I can remember all the places that I was, like like sitting at at, at my uncle's house, just fawning over that picture of the, you know, the, the Concert Tom kit sitting on the railroad tracks. And, and I, I am that kid again. And uh, sadly, I think that guys who are looking at PDFs and online stuff and the YouTubes, you know, it's sad. They're, they're never going to get that experience. And it's also sad, too, because I think um, because there's not as much print being generated in my industry anymore. It's going away. And that's and that's kind of sad. That's Ron Donett.
3: He's worked with drums since 1978, and his work with the Donet Classic brand has made him a household name in the industry. On his website, he describes his work as a labor of lust. His marketing stands as some of the most prolific and recognizable in the drumming world, and he'll never tell you that print doesn't matter.
4: As far as marketing goes, you know, there's that old saying, you're not selling the steak, you're selling the sizzle. Well, it's it's actually true. I take stock of what I've done in my career, looking back and I go it wasn't and I, I don't want this to make it sound like that I didn't come by what I did honestly like I was okay well I gotta market this stuff and I gotta it was honest and it was genuine and I was excited about it and I still am and I was full of piss and vinegar and as I look back on that stuff I realized I wasn't marketing for the sake of marketing I was being honest and the marketing was just another art form
3: there's another side to Ron's marketing, though. He runs the George Way brand, a classic company which experienced a revival under his leadership. You can feel the tone shift when he starts to talk about this brand. The reason?
4: Well, George Way was a classy guy, and I'm not. That's <laughs> 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 pretty much where it goes, man. It's like this. I've, I've always, especially when I look at you know, some of my... Uh, industry contemporaries i go i'm lucky you know i hate that oh you know he's he doesn't have any filter it's like it's me uh, it's, it's not about you know well who do i gotta filter anything for this is just me consider yourself lucky to be getting that instead of the filtered and shaped and righteously milked version you know so but when it comes to george I am in that position. I do want that to come across uh, as a, a kinder, gentler brand because I love him. And he's like a, an uncle or a grandfather to me, even though I never met him. It's just over the years that I've had the brand, he's become like that. And when you're handling someone's legacy like that, especially when it wasn't one that you came by um, you know, directly from him, I really like to be respectful and, and conscious of that. Not that anything that I do is disrespectful, but it's, it's, it, there is a delineation there, and I think you can see that.
3: There's room for more than just branding in the drum publication world, though. Ron's also a photographer, and he takes photos of drummers that he's come to love. He's compiling them in a book that he calls Role Models, The Book of Drum.
4: Like everything I do, it comes from a, an honest and sincere place, and I lead with my heart. And I've been shooting musicians started with a 110 Vivitar snap camera and got tossed from a rush sound check at 15 or 16. it was never my intention I just enjoyed capturing musicians but more specifically drummers and as my career in drums progressed once in a while I, there was a you know I'd get a call from a magazine hey did you, do you have any good shots of this guy or that guy? and it'd be like yeah absolutely sure here you go but at one point, I took a step back and looked at this body of work, and there were some truly, there were some real standout images. And I thought, having seen images, black and whites, of guys like Elvin Jones and all these other guys, I realized, you know, there's a real important historic element to this as well, it's sort of along the same vein as George Way. And, and I thought, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a shame if nobody ever saw all of these? You know, and then I had this great idea that I was going to do this book. It took on a life of its own, and it was humming along right up until uh, COVID hit, and actually with the passing of Neil. That really put a a bit of a damper on the project and also put the brakes on it for a while. Obviously, now's not the time to be going out to people's houses like I did with Jack Dejeuner and a whole bunch of other, you know, going to see Mr. Hayes play uh, in New York. I I was working on this based on the concept that, like, I'll never get them all. So that's why I'll call it a volume one. And there might not even be a volume two. So as far as volume one goes, I'll try and put in as much as I can into this. And there were some big names that I wanted to get. And unfortunately, there's been some guys who, you know, Joe Procaro passed. I won't be able to have him in there. And there's been a few, you know, famous drummers that I really wanted to include. And some that I do have images of me just standing with them. And I'm like going... For the purposes of the book, I want to include them. In fact, you'll like this idea, but I was actually going to call this Role Models, The Book of a Drum, Volume 2. And then in the foreword, I was going to say, you're wondering where Volume 1 is. Well, Volume 1 is actually all the ones that got away that I didn't have an opportunity to include because they're gone. And then just list some of the guys as an acknowledgement to say, I didn't get, Well, actually, I did get Buddy Rich. Um, with a 110 snappy camera, and I'm going to include that one anyway. So the idea of this book is it's about the drummers that I've captured so early on as I as I started, you know, the crappy pictures and the good pictures, and that's what the, the concept of the book is. But with Neil passing and with having had, had the, the good, good fortune to have been able to photograph him, especially in some environments where he was outside of Rush, he was going to be a big part of the book. Uh and he's gone. And so the last thing I wanted to do would was be one of the guys who was capitalizing or cashing in or even just the appearance of that on his passing. So I decided, OK, you know, and then COVID hit and I went a good enough reason for me to take a step back from this and uh, focus on something else. You know, as I start, as we started to see this thing sort of uh, wear itself out and we can get back to what we were doing before, I'll pick it up again.
3: Whether or not they're marketing or showcasing, drum companies and their publications have adapted as times have changed. Uli Salazar is a marketing and artist relations manager at the Ludwig Drum Company, and he says there may be a niche for all formats as society becomes increasingly digital.
5: Well, the the market certainly evolves substantially in this digital era, and certainly over the last 20 years that the value of print Necessarily isn't what it used to be, but it's still tremendously valuable. And I think it it forces a lot of people that, you know, if you're going to invest in, in a print initiative to be very compelling and really put together an experience with print. In order for it to land and for even somebody to be excited enough to take possession of it, digest the information and spend that time flipping through this piece of paper, which can sometimes get in the way in your pocket next to your phone, right? It's like, well, what can I not do on this piece of paper that I can't get from my phone? So certainly it's very much an experience. And there's a lot, there's, you know, being an old company, we obviously have a vast audience and a vast demographic of of people. You know, you have your millennial and younger type of audience that maybe doesn't prefer print, but you still have a good amount of millennial demographic and older that very much appreciate print. And it was part of their coming up as a player and things like that to where they see the value of that information that you put out in print. And that's why, you know, it's it's especially important not only to put together something very compelling, but something very detail oriented. Uh, something that very much lays out the facts that lays out a very uh, good sequence of the facts so that basically a customer can you know can can look at this and, and walk away feeling like they've they've become informed on the product they feel like they've almost played the product by not physically playing the product kind of thing. So that's that's the the type of impression you you need to leave with print. And that's really difficult when you're competing with a digital landscape that can offer a lot more in terms of like audio and visual experiences that are augmented beyond what print could do. So that's kind of where where your mindset and the priorities need to exist when you're thinking about print. So it certainly forces you into a corner. Where you have to be way more creative and way more critical on your work, and so for for us, like I send stuff out to get multiple opinions, even even if it's digital. Like I, I very much value outside input. So for us, it's not really, you know, working in a silo and carving out something that only a handful of people on the inside have seen. You know, we talk to artists, we talk to dealers, even sometimes end consumers that I'm good friends with that appreciate, you know, what drum companies are doing, you kind of reach out, ask for an opinion. And, you know, you kind of feed off that and you start to develop because you're learning what your audience responds to when you do something like that, as opposed to, you know, just kind of shot in the dark and holding yourself as an authority or an expert. And I think it's really important to have that mindset, especially when you're crafting something that needs to be very detailed like print.
3: Finding those key marketable publics usually is not as big of an issue as cutting through the clutter is. For many companies, that clutter starts early in a player's life. What impact then does the education field have in companies' publications? It's massively important. I mean, that's one of the fundamental reasons why
5: I think this company has lasted as long as it did is because of its commitment to the percussive arts. And the one thing that always made Ludwig really unique compared to other American drum companies, especially other American drum companies that aren't around today, was a big portion of its product assortment existing to cater to educational groups. Back in the day, even in the 70s and 80s, there was a really massive commitment with the company and having a ton of educational resources and being very serving in that sense. And Ludwig today has benefited from that component and that factor in being part of Con Selmer because Con Selmer is band and orchestra instruments with woodwind and brass. So, you know, you're putting yourself at the forefront of these publications of different initiatives and things like that. And your brand is very much part of the subject matter Even if it's in the background, it's there. And by it existing there and even being in classrooms or in educational materials, you're sort of in a way, not to be used or taken in a bad way, but subliminally placing your product there. But it's necessary. It's not like we're throwing out objects that hold no relevance to the material. You kind of need these instruments to play. So they kind of go hand in hand. And that's always worked. And I think that's what I've always liked about our industry is how authentic branding and marketing is in that sense, where we're not trying to sell you the story, more so focusing on the experience and letting your presence within that experience and that sphere sort of sell the person on the product and build that confidence in the product, build that excitement for the product at the same time.
3: As much as things change, they tend to stay the same. Uli's points are just as relevant to the ways drum companies marketed over a century ago. Lucas Aldridge is an expert on all things vintage drums, and he's found out how companies marketed through years of research.
0: I really don't think it's changed just for the subject matter. Because music, even though it's gotten a lot more complicated now, and there are a lot more players in the game, I think, it it's still a matter of playing a live show to people to have them dance and enjoy themselves. And, you know, drums being something that you can pursue to be a part of that and be a structural element in creating music. I don't think that that's changed in a big enough way to really severely alter the tone of the way that we talk about the instrument. You know, we hit things in certain patterns and it makes us feel good.
3: In particular, he found one instance of vintage marketing while looking for images to use on his business card.
0: I was trying to find a graphic, something that would would kind of set me apart and and represent what I do with percussion that I think is unique. And I found this image on a 1928, I believe it was Ludwig catalog. Uh, It was a cover image, and it was of this guy with slick back blonde hair playing this enormous orchestral kit with timpani and chimes and a vibraphone off to the left. And there were all these well-dressed people, clearly at a fancy gathering with a stained glass window in the background. And I think that looking at that one image, which is... The cover of a fairly specialist catalog, you get a pretty decent sense for the culture of the time of, of what people were into, what they aspired to in terms of class symbols
3: and, you know, that sort of event. Just like art mirrors life, so too can marketing. Lucas points out that there's a connection to be made between how we perceive drummers' roles in their bands and their culture.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of insight into how we view ourselves, for one, in the way that the publications talk about, the way that they try to romanticize the role of drumming. There's an advertisement that comes to mind of, was either Black Beauty or Gold Triumphal, something engraved that said, drummers playing with gold snare drums get paid more, or something to the effect of that. You know, you make more money when you show up looking fancy. But the, the copy that went with that was so clearly putting the drums in this background support role that they definitely do inhabit but I mean now when you look at advertising about drums there's a Sweetwater ad that comes up on my phone all the time I don't know if you have this one too where it's like do you want more drums and it's a guy playing a solo on the roof of the building completely by himself and I think that you know post like guitar centric rock music in the west everybody wants to be the star of the band but I don't think it used to be angled that way and I think that you know looking at the marketing and looking at the write-ups of, of well-known drummers which I think that used to be more of a thing than it is now too the big Band era, the general public was more informed about who the drummer was, who the saxophonist was, and they would notice if they went to see a band and and it was a sub guy for that gig. I don't know if it's even fair to say that it did disappear, but I think that that attitude is reflected in the in the shift in tone that you see in in the marketing.
3: It goes beyond drummers, though. Looking through the lens of vintage drumming literature, you can see just how much the world has evolved.
0: In that time period, I'm talking about the first things that I'm aware of, the late 1800s. Uh, I'm sure it goes back further than that. I'm sure that as soon as there are drums, there are, you know, magazines, publications that are widely available, uh, or at least catalogs, if nothing else. They had a, a devotion to a retail structure that we don't necessarily have right now. Discount stores were not really a thing. And you would go to a retail place and you would buy a drum from Ludwig, say, at list price. Ludwig would sell the drums to a wholesaler who would sell them to a retailer who would have have the the end job of actually making the sale happen. I think that with that in mind when you look at the the marketing for it, when you look at the advertisements, it's Glorifying the product and and the image that it can represent about you as a person. If you've read any of the late 1800s advertising, you'll see how kind of disturbingly exaggerated it all is. Like your life will be better. Your back won't hurt anymore. (laughs) Everything will be grand. I mean, the same seeps its way through into the drum articles, well into the twenties and thirties about that, because I don't think they were that concerned with making sure they could hook you and sell you from the description right there. And then um, that was somebody else's job further down the supply chain.
3: That spot on the supply chain is now manned by the dealer. Most drum companies sell through dealers. Since you can't buy direct, they become a key home for appealing publications. One of these dealers, industry veteran Randy Lanier, says good literature is key to a hectic retail routine
6: we're having a full line store, problem with me is somebody comes in and asks some intricate detail on the Ludwig, such and such, and then 20 minutes later, somebody's asking some specific thing on a PVPA system, then somebody else's. And so, for the dealer, you, you just can't keep up because there's so much intricate information and, and people are walking through the doors. But yeah. The, what's the number of plies of of the, uh, the Gretch, renowned by? Oh, let me check, dude.
3: <laughs> Randy's experiences with drum literature go back to publications like the Ludwig Drummer, an innovative magazine which fused marketing with resources that drummers couldn't get anywhere
6: else. Well, you know, it was yeah you know, Ludwig's Drum Magazine. I think it was um, quarterly. I believe the the cool thing about it was, it had all kind of stuff on. Tuning drums and they'd be drum songs and things with like different products. You know, it was just their promo thing. We got some from the early '60s. You know, so yeah. I think it was in the '50s that started it. Then I, I always say the Ludwig Modern Drummer because Modern Drummer magazine came in around 1980, and I think Buddy Rich was on the first ever cover. They always differentiate too because one of them was a monthly magazine that was all things drums that had never happened before. You had guitar, magazines, and, but never a drum. And so the Ludwig was obviously Ludwig's promo, which was fantastic, but I wouldn't say anything about any other drum company. You know, modern drummer, here was every artist, every brand, new stuff, fast for pro, just good positive information to keep a positive attitude.
3: In addition to being a dealer, Randy's also an avid drum collector. His desk at work is a vintage Rogers double bass drum set with glass on top of the rack toms. And the office it sits in is filled with priceless drums spanning an entire century floor to ceiling. Even though he's had decades to amass his collection of gear, Randy says publications from drum companies have an irreplaceable factor through the years.
6: There's a guy that might not be able to afford a 1972 engraved Black Beauty or whatever. But that brochure, that catalog is $10 of the $4,000 on. I'll get that catalog, it, which is the way it was back then in yeah, 1972, 1965, 19-whatever. There are some people who couldn't afford the Ludwigs or something, and but they would get the catalogs. Hey, I used to have a bunch of Ludwig catalogs. Now I got a bunch of Ludwig sets. <laughs> You know, and and it's just kind of neat that I still have, yeah, some old Ludwig catalogs and it's just neat to look at it and go, oh man, (laughs) you know, it's the same thing of when you see an old book that you had when you was a child. Yeah, you open that book and you're three years old again. Those pictures, yeah, you can look at those pictures on the internet, you can find them and you can see it. But to hold a physical book print, it's the thing.
3: At the end of the day, though, these publications have to appeal to drummers in a unique way. For New York drummer Jordan Rose, whose experience ranges from indie, pop, and even Broadway musicals, the small things
2: make a big difference. Uh, I think, you know, I'm just naturally looking for the things that resonate with me. You know, sometimes I'll pick up something and I just immediately am turned off by it. It's like, you know, not to name names, but certain drum companies, I see a photo of their drum set and in my head I hear a sound, that I don't really care to, like, incorporate into my world at this point. Maybe, you know, we're always changing. We we hear with our eyes. Certain instruments speak to us in different
3: ways, you know? Just like Randy, Jordan raved about one certain publication's impact
2: on his early experience with drumming. Modern Drummer magazine was a big one for me. I think it was a Christmas gift. Parents got me the subscription. It was super exciting. And just seeing these drummers who are making a a life of playing drums and just reading about them and seeing their gear. That was just really helpful because as humans, one of the ways we learn is through observation. And, you know, if you live in a suburb of a city like I did growing up, like, it's not like I'm surrounded by drummers, you know? So the magazine brought that to my home. You know, this was pre-YouTube. And then once I started getting more serious and had some instructors, you know, and band and got a private teacher and stuff, then they started turning me on to some different videos or DVDs, like the Modern Drummer Festival, for example. It helped me start forming opinions about what stood out to me. And I started noticing that there's not just one way to play drums. You can sound like Vinnie Colaiuta or Steve Gadd or whoever, you know. As someone
3: who's played for Theo Katzman, SZA, and Charlie Puth, among others, certain things stick out to Jordan. Some companies like Zildjian bring the drumming community together, making them stand out as assets
2: to drummers all over. So Zildjian, maybe the past year or two, they've been doing a lot of events where they're having their artists play a show and they'll just make a sick video and uh, they'll release like one a month. And I think they've done a good job at getting a diverse crew of artists like Aaron Spears one night, uh, Stanton Moore another night. They're getting a variety of, of their artists in different genres and sounds, which I think is smart. That's that's just been cool to like watch and just be like, oh, this is the modern version of like the modern drummer festival DVDs. Me as a 33 year old professional drummer and like a 12 year old drummer just getting started can go to this YouTube page and find inspiration. From these videos. I just think that's cool, like that they're putting out this really inspiring content. And I feel like they've done a good job at focusing on like community, especially this year. I think community is, it feels good, you know.
3: Nobody knows what the drummers of tomorrow will turn into if they're stuck with PDFs. Maybe they'll be able to be inspired in the same ways the drummers of today are. Maybe they won't. But it's undeniable that the world of drum publications holds a power over the community that gives us hope for our rock star aspirations, for our love of nostalgia, and especially in 2020, for our sense of belonging. That there's someone out there that loves the instrument just as much as we do. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Fenneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.